why is it that Hillary Clinton supporters are certain they're going to win and Trump supporters seem certain they're going to win? What Mike and I found, people think that in the future, other people are going to change in ways that benefit them. And just like that, the 2016 presidential marathon, uh, I mean election, is finally over. And while that may come as a relief to the majority of Americans, there's a nearly equal number who feel downright rotten right now. And thanks to today's guest, we know exactly how rotten. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by HKS Associate Professor Todd Rogers, who's here to discuss the findings of a number of recent studies that offer an incisive perspective on how we think about and react to the world we live in. But before we get started, we'd like to hear from you. Have something to say about this week's topic or guest? Email us at policycast at hks.harvard.edu. Now, we haven't really done this before, so we're not exactly sure what to expect. But if there's a healthy response, we're hoping to start integrating your feedback into each week's episode. So don't be shy. All right. Without further ado, here's Professor Rogers. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, by the time this episode is published, there will be a lot of very disappointed people across the country. And I'm sure there are going to be a lot of happy people, too. Um, but thanks to you wor- your work, we know exactly how disappointed they likely are. Um, what got you interested in this idea of trying to measure people's responses to electoral wins and losses? So one thing that's interesting that we have observed every election cycle is that both sides are almost certain they're going to win. And it's not just this motivated discussion that you hear both candidates now saying, we're definitely going to win to keep people excited and motivated. But it appears both sides truly believe, regardless of what the media and the polls seem to be showing, that they're going to win. And so that means that half actually, almost always a little less than half of the electorate is disappointed and surprised by the loss. It's not just that they lost, it's that they were surprised they lost Mm -hmm. and they didn't win. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in how intense is that feeling of disappointment? Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up looking for was a data set that had continuous measures of just asking people, how do you feel? How happy are you? How sad are you? Mm-hmm. And so when we found that, we started to explore, so what, what are what we call the hedonic consequences of losing and winning and relative to other kinds of pain? How painful is that? Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of partisan identity? Partisan is kind of a negative word now. It, you know, it's partisanship, et cetera. Um, but... Uh, two-thirds of Americans identify with some kind of political party. Um, Can you describe how that impacts the way they live their lives? Yeah, this has actually been a topic that political scientists, economists, and psychologists have all pursued. It's not just that we have this partisan identity. This partisan identity seems to shape so many dimensions of our lived experience. People are more likely to move to places where people share their partisanship. They're more likely to socialize with people who share their partisanship. Who wins the election changes how people spend money and pay taxes. Uh, It also shapes how they interpret and evaluate new people they meet. And so 
This partisanship is both a set of preferences and a set of beliefs about what's best for the country and what's best for individuals. Uh, and it, But it also seems to shape the kinds of work environments, social lives, geography that we experience. Mm-hmm. And so the the partisanship that and I think partisanship may get simplified into these two binaries of Republican and Democrat in America. It's actually ideology, right? So I think at the end of this election, which again, as you said, has not happened by the time we're recording this, but the listeners will be will have seen what has happened. Mm-hmm. There is likely to be discussion about how one of the two parties may not be a may be particularly not stable as it's currently formulated. But that actually doesn't change the point, which is that our political ideology seems to organize our lives. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, y- you wrote in your report that the pain of losing the 2012 presidential election dominated the joy of winning it. Um, can you talk about the results? I mean, exactly how much does it uh, impact people? So you could imagine that winning an election would make you feel good and losing it would make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. And that maybe on net, it has, on average, no effect. But that doesn't appear anywhere close to what happens. And I think part of that story, <clears throat> excuse me, is because everyone expects to win. When you get what you were expecting, there's like no hedonic boost. You just, it doesn't feel that good. It's exactly what you expected. And so you go on living your life. Your life has unfolded the way you expected. We won. But if you were expecting to win and then you lose, that really stinks and that hurts and you hear it. And I'm sure on the day when this is being listened to, there are a lot of people who are stunned, which given the polling, they shouldn't be, but they believe they were going to win and it really hurts. And so what we found is not just that it really hurts, but we came up with ways to come up with comparisons for how much does it hurt? Does it hurt more or less than other things that hurt? Mm-hmm. Right. And you, to do this, you compared it to national, uh, a couple of national tragedies, the Newtown shooting and the uh, Boston Marathon bombing. That's a pretty, pretty interesting choices for uh, comparisons. Can you describe your uh, thought process? Right. There? So we, yeah, sure. We came up with the original finding. We're like, hey, it turns out that losing hurts a lot more than winning feels good. Okay. That's consistent with decades of research in psychology and economics. And then we wanted to know, okay, so what is this one and a half or whatever the point estimate is on a seven point scale? What does that mean? Maybe it was a four. I I don't, I don't even recall what, but it was some number that is inherently meaningless on a seven point scale. So in order to come up with a sense of how intense that loss is, that pain, that sadness, that decrease in happiness, we started thinking, what is the most intense thing that at a national or regional level we've experienced that should really hurt people in their hedonic well-being? And so we had just lived through in the preceding couple of years really two terrible tragedies. One, at least two, but these are the two that we had good data on. One is the Newtown shooting where all these young children were shot in a preschool or an elementary school in an elementary school. And we had data on the happiness consequences before and after that shooting of people who have children. And so as at the time I had two small children and I still have two small children, 
I know that I felt that particularly because I could I could relate, uh, and we wondered to what extent that impaired other people's happiness, and how does that decrement in happiness compare to the decrement in happiness experienced by uh, people who lost the 2012 presidential election, which was Mitt Romney supporters. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we had just experienced the Boston Marathon bombings in Boston, and the shutdown of the city for the subsequent couple of days as they pursued the terrorists who had done it. And so what we, what we also had was data on the Boston region. And so what was the happiness decrement for Bostonians during that time period? Mm-hmm. And how did that compare to the Mitt Romney loss? Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, like the Mitt Romney loss is bad for Republicans, but one might think that these really profound tragedies for relevant communities that they would at least be comparable or maybe the tragedies would be worse. Mm -hmm. And your findings were? (laughs) To our surprise, the partisan loss, losing the election, hurt twice as much as being a Bostonian during the Boston Marathon bombings or being a parent of children uh, during the and after the Newtown shootings. So that, what that is to say is that losing an election hurts a lot. And the way we quantify what a lot means, it hurts twice as much as, these, as being a relevant population during these national tragedies. Mm-hmm. How long does it last? In our data, it only lasted a, a week or two. Mm-hmm. And then people are back to where they were before. A week's a pretty short time, um, even if it is a pretty deep wound. Right. Is there reason to believe that a week of, of sadness can actually have uh, be an influential force in someone's life or, or even in society broadly? Well, it's consistent with this research in psychology that people like Dan Gilbert here at Harvard and others have worked on, on what's called the impact bias, which is that people fail to appreciate that we have a psychological immune system, which is just like when uh, we end up with some kind of infection, our body mobilizes, neutralizes it, and reaches homeostasis again. Uh, Psychologically, we have that too. And so we feel this intense sadness. In forecast, we think that that's going to last forever and it's going to continue to be this deep. But after a little bit of time, we realize, you know, Mitt Romney didn't win, but I still love my family. You mentioned the surprise inherent in anybody losing an election. Uh, It seems as good of a segue as any to uh, another paper that uh, you uh, wrote with Michael Norton at the business school, The Belief in a Favorable Future. Um, Can you describe what your uh, work showed on this one? Yeah, this is... This is very related, I think, actually, in the sense that why is it that Democrats, Hillary Clinton supporters, are certain they're going to win, and Trump supporters seem certain they're going to win? Uh, What Mike and I found across an incredibly strange array and broad array of domains, people think that in the future, other people are going to change in ways that benefit them. So that is, you know... When it comes to the federal budget, I think we're just going to pass this short-term measure because in two years, more congressmen will be elected 
that resemble my preferences. So I can just keep kicking the can down the road, not because I don't want to deal with it, but because I think in the future there's going to be more people like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found that in across all these domains, Democrats think that in the future there'll be more Democrats. Republicans think there'll be more Republicans. Uh, American Idol fans think there will be more fans of American Idol in the future than there are now. American Idol not fans or haters think there will be more haters in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we even find it across cultures that that in the future, more people are going to share my preferences. I like Android over iPhone. I think that in the future, there'll be many more Android supporters relative to iPhone and mm-hmm. vice versa. So the idea is we think in the future that the future just... The arc of the future, the arc of time bends towards looking like me. What I found interesting about this was if you think that things are going to become more like yourself, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you think they're going to get better. Can you talk about that? (laughs) Yes. In a few different studies in a bunch of ways, we try to tease that apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one study, we actually asked people to list attributes of themselves that they like and that they dislike. And then we have them say, do you think that the attribute about yourself will become more common in the future or less common? And do you think the attribute that you dislike about yourself will be more common or less common? And so imagine that the attribute I dislike is that I am, am a disgusting eater. Let's, let's imagine that as a hypothetical. Uh, I'm sure it bears no relevance to yes. the real-world thing. Yes. You, you, sure, if you ask anyone in my family, no one would agree with that. <laughs> the, I, I actually, people tend to think that their disfavored attributes will become more common in the future, and then, and then they report that it will be better for them if it is more common because it will be less distinctive. So if everyone eats as grossly as me, awesome, because then no one will notice <laughs> that food is dripping out of my mouth. And, and then my favorable attributes, which is, you know, let's say that I, uh, you know, it's like in a job interview, what's your, what's your weakness? I care too much. Let's say that I care too much. If in the future, I actually, people think that their favorite attributes will become less common. It'll make them even more distinctive. I care too much and fewer people care too much in the future. So the future, it's not just that it, it moves in ways that resemble me. It moves in ways that benefit me. Mm-hmm. Now, you also noted that this actually has an impact on people's motivation. Uh, if you think the world is, uh, you know, bending towards your uh, your eventual preference, then you're less likely to act and try and make it happen. Right. We we have a phrase that I wish I had. You have it in front of you right now, but it, we we there's a sentence that I think captures it, where it's that believing that the future will necessarily change in ways that benefit you may make it may make you less likely to behave in ways that make that future possible. Mm-hmm. So imagine we find this for gay marriage, for abortion, for legalizing marijuana. People who think who prefer one way on that think that in the future others will just automatically come towards them. So I think marijuana should be legalized. I think in the future more people will agree. So by believing that that's automatically going to happen it may make me less likely to take action to actually make that happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's this ironic political demotivation that, it, that because you think it's already going to happen, there's no need for you to take action now to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And we actually, in subsequent studies, have done this with fundraising experiments for campaigns. When people think that their candidate is going to win, 
they're less likely to give than when they think their candidate is going to lose. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk about this uh, the study that you essentially uh, found that people are terrible at predicting how they're going to vote, um, but people asking people how they're going to vote are good at predicting it. I, I, you probably can put it in much better uh, terms than I can. Uh, can you explain that? Nice try, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't um, know if it was, but <laughs> we'll go with it. So <laughs> it, it's not your fault. It actually is, is a pretty complicated idea. But here's, here's what I think is the simplest version. First, I am calling you, Matt, to encourage you to vote. Do you intend to vote? You say. Yes. And then we hang up. It turns out whether you say yes or no is basically not predictive at all of whether you're actually going to vote. So that's finding one. It turns out that people are horrible at self-predicting whether or not they're going to vote. Many people who say no actually do vote. Many people who say yes actually don't vote. And so we actually wrote a paper where the original draft was, why bother asking? And it's because that question is so useless. Yet, a lot of pollsters still rely on questions like that to decide who's going to vote and then from that to decide what the horse race looks like. Mm -hmm. So that was the main original finding. And then I'm a social psychologist and as a a psychologist, I wondered, well, is there other information in the way that that you said that that was conveyed? So I say, hey, Matt, do you intend to vote? Yes. We hang up. And then I can tell from the way you said that I can infer all sorts of things. How certain do you sound? How confident? How hesitant? And there's a bunch of these attributes that I can infer because I'm a human inference machine. I'm a social inference machine. Humans mm-hmm. are really good at reading other humans. Mm-hmm. And just from the what's called paralinguistic, nonverbal communi- information conveyed in the way you said yes, turns out I can actually predict with surprising accuracy whether you will actually follow through on what you said you'd do. And it only holds for when you say yes, but not for when you say no. And that's consistent with that really some of what's happening is you're saying yes, but you don't mean it. You're, it's obvious you're supposed to say yes. You're giving me the desirable answer. And I can pick up on that deception. And this is consistent with lots of other research on, on deception detection, which is that you hesitate, you sound uncon- uncertain. There are all these attributes that are aligned with nonverbal communications of deception. Mm-hmm. And so given that, it turns out I can pick up on those. There are other attributes that you communicate, other, other dimensions of information you communicate that I fail to pick up on. And in this paper, we sort of explore what are the attributes that me, the caller, the untrained, unacquainted uh, professional caller is, are accurately picking up on that allows me to get accuracy in predicting whether you're going to vote, whether you're mm-hmm. going to follow through on what you said you're going to do. But then there are other dimensions that, that how can we make callers like me even more accurate? Mm-hmm. And how can we use technology to, uh, to be able to use these features of communication that are not verbal, they're not words, but they are paralinguistic, they're conveyed in the voice to be able to figure out, like for example, when medical doctors prescribe drugs, uh, it turns out that this suggests that doctors are probably pretty good at telling whether you're gonna follow through on your prescription. And we could probably target interventions based not just on what you say, but also on, uh, the intuitive judgment of untrained people who are untrained at, at inferring whether you're lying or not. Were there specific things that uh, you were able to target and, and focus on that are predictors? There, there are a whole host of them, but mm-hmm. they fall under two different dimensions. The first is deception. 
like all the attributes that are consistent with deception. Uh, I, I remember one was response latency, how long it takes you to, to speak. Uh, the extra words you say, words like, um, like filler words. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, and the, so the, there's this, this whole uh, bucket of dimensions that are aligned with deception. And then there's also a bucket of dimensions that are aligned with uncertainty. In some cases, you are truly uncertain. You say yes, but you don't know when, you don't know how, you don't have a plan. Mm-hmm. And that, that may come out in the way you say, I, I, I guess, yeah. Uh, that is a yes, but it sounds like you're, you may not actually follow through on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's uncertainty and deception. I don't think uh, anyone enjoys lying. One thing that you have found uh, is that one way people get around it is to try to deceive without the use of uh, untruths. You've created a word to describe this. Can you tell us about it? Matt, really artful transition. (laughs) Very artful transition. Why, thank you. We call this artful paltering. And when you say a lot of people... Uh, don't like to lie. I mean, we just lived through an election cycle where it was not as obvious that all humans uh, don't like to lie. Uh, I think every election cycle is, is an exercise in that. Perhaps. <laughs> I, I, this one seemed particularly egregious. Um, so there are, we call it artful paltering, and the, uh, it is based, this word palter, not widely known, exists. And what it means is to mislead by saying truthful things. So uh, an artful palter in politics is where you know that you are leading your listener to a false conclusion by saying truthful things. This happens all the time with incomplete answers. Uh, the famous, by far the most famous example of this uh, was Bill Clinton being asked if he had sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky. And when he's interviewed by Jim Lehrer, he says, there are no sexual relations or there is no sexual relationship with that woman. And he's telling the truth because there's currently, it had broken off months earlier and he is telling a truthful thing and the listeners and Jim Lair could be forgiven for interpreting that as there was no sexual relationship with that woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see this all the time. And the idea is exactly as you said, most people don't want to lie, but they're happy to mislead. And we have a whole program of research on, on what are the consequences of this. And the, the key takeaway is, one, it happens frequently. Expert negotiators report doing this kind of deception even more than any other kind of deception, or Mm -hmm. at least as much. And one of the reasons it may arise is because those who mislead by saying truthful things, like I I admit I do it sometimes. So like an email sitting in my inbox for three months and I reply and I need to come up with a cover story for why it took me so long to reply to your email, Matt. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll hit reply, it'll sit on my screen, I'll look out the window, I'll think about it for about two seconds and then I'll say, hey Matt, Sorry for the delay. I've been thinking about your email. And you could be forgiven for thinking that that meant for the last three months or some non-trivial period of time. Mm-hmm. But it only been the last two seconds. But I'm saying something truthful, knowingly leading you or intentionally leading you to a false conclusion. Mm-hmm. What happens is people who do that think that it's honest. I do it because I think it's honest. You, if you knew the truth, think that it's not that different from an outright lie. Mm-hmm. And so the reason it may arise is that 
there's this bro this there's this asymmetry. People who do it think it's okay. People who do, who who are the counterparts think that it's deception. Mm-hmm. And so it allows people like me to feel like we are totally truthfully honest people, and people like you to think that I'm no better than someone who lied to you. And it sounds like people have uh, anyone who's employing paltering is very bad at judging um, the audience upon which uh, they're delivering it uh, in terms of how they're receiving it. So this research is a a massive collaboration with Richard Zeckhauser here at the Kennedy School and Mike Norton at the Business School, Francesca Gino at the Business School, and Maurice Schweitzer at Wharton at Penn. And one of the things that Richard is who uh, who inspired this this line of work and with paltering likes to point out is that it's not it's possible that palters get detected less than other forms of lying that they're they're less egregious and conditional on being detected they're punished but it's possible that you're just not going to find out whether I thought about your email for 2 seconds or for 2 months Mm-hmm. And so, yes, conditional on it being found out, I'm going to be punished as a, as a liar. Mm-hmm. But the probability of it being found out it may not be that high. And you distinguish between uh, prompted and unprompted uh, paltering. Talk about that. There's this dimension of deception where you are asked a question conveying that the asker specifically and explicitly wants an answer to that narrow question. And then there's other forms of deception where it's not prompted at all, and I just want to lead you to a false conclusion. And it turns out that they end up with different ethical implications. If you clearly, intentionally want to know the answer to this question, what are you going to replace Obamacare with? Or, you know, some other specific narrow policy, and then I lead you down a road that makes you come to a false conclusion, people think that that's more unethical Mm -hmm. than if, what do you think on this topic? And then I lead you down a false conclusion. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's more than an academic distinction. The actual response is, is significant from the receivers of the paltering, I guess. Right. The same response, the same palter can be the same misleading act from a communicator standpoint Mm -hmm. can be uh, seen as, even more unethical if it is in response to a specific narrow question that conveys that you really care about the answer to this one question and I've misled you. Mm-hmm. Do people prefer to palter over, uh, over lying? Do you, do you, is it ever a conscious choice? We had a, a, what I think was a, was a, was a pretty um, solid experimental design, which I will not bore or... Uh, <laughs> or confuse the listeners with, where we gave, we effectively gave people the opportunity to make money by misleading a counterpart. And in one condition, they would be paid more if they lied than if they paltered. And they still preferred to palter over lying, even though it meant making less money. So you could interpret that, which we do, as people would pay to palter instead of lie, meaning they prefer paltering so much to lying that they're willing to forego extra earnings to palter instead of lie. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I, I make sense of that is we want to maintain a self-concept, a view of ourselves as being honest people. 
Mm-hmm. And paltering makes it a lot easier to maintain that self-concept than lying does. Because it's really hard to convince yourself that a lie is not a lie. It's not really hard. People do it all the time. But it's harder than to say, those truthful things are true. It's your fault for not knowing that I didn't fully answer your question. And when it comes to negotiations and uh, negotiation analysis, how does this impact things? This is a a context negotiation where paltering arises frequently, Mm -hmm. where there are both legal and ethical implications for saying actively, factually untrue things. And so what we find in negotiation is that people like to, they, they frequently palter and that in the short term, paltering leads to more successful value claiming in negotiations, which is if I lead you to a false conclusion that benefits me, you believe the false conclusion, the outcome benefits me. But when you find out about it, you think I am a jerk or fill in your favorite four-letter mm-hmm. word. And, and you don't believe that uh, you are. <laughs> I, 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 believe, I don't believe it as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, so in negotiation context, paltering can be effective in the short term. But from a reputation standpoint, it makes it so you don't want to work with me again. If you find out, and this is, again, where, like, in equilibrium, what does the world look like? Do people find out when palters happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, hard, hard to know. Do they find out when lies happen? Hard to know. We, mm-hmm. we don't know what the, what the relationship between those are. But when it's found out, people think it resembles a lie. Well, something tells me that uh, when we do find out, it'll likely be from another series of studies uh, from, <laughs> from your uh, prolific output. Todd Rogers is an associate professor here at the Kennedy School. Uh, you can find links to all the studies we discussed here today in the show notes, as well as at his website, scholar.harvard.edu slash Todd underscore Rogers. Professor Rogers, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.